Good morning. So good to see you all here this morning. I just appreciate you folks worshiping that way, celebrating that way. You know, I uh, this last I'm, I think I'm coming down with something, and uh, I didn't sleep much last night, so I'm a little low on the energy side. And you know, you're just not quite in the mood to do all that. But when you got everybody around you, I mean, you bless me just being here. It, 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 it's contagious. Worship is contagious, and and you can sense the presence of God, and the energy kind of comes in. And, and before you know it, I'm jumping up and down too. So. Uh, I just appreciate you guys. Thanks for being invested in worship. Amen. My name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor here at Woodland Hills Church. And uh, as I said, it's really good. You, look, you guys look beautiful this morning. I'm telling you, you look beautiful. You look marvelous. <laughs> Happy Thanksgiving Day weekend. I hope that you've had a good Thanksgiving. Uh, it may be that this world has given you very little to be thankful for. Maybe things are really on the outs right now, but you're a friend of God, and, and that's something to be thankful for. Amen. For all eternity, the God of this universe calls you friend. That's reason enough right there. If you're visiting for the first time, hi. Uh, we sometimes get a little rowdy, uh, but that's all right. And we hope that you are uh, getting blessed by it. All right. We are this morning, well, we decided to uh, postpone for one week. We actually decided this at the very beginning of our series on revolting beauty. Uh, we decided to postpone the grand finale of this series till next week. Um, mainly because we anticipated, though it doesn't seem to be the case, that a lot of people would be gone on Thanksgiving weekend and, and um, a lot of the small groups aren't meeting. And so we, we thought we, we wanted to save the grand finale for, for when everyone's here. So that'll be next week and I encourage you to come because I've got something a little bit special in store for the sermon. I'm planning on it at, at least at this point. So come back for that. But that means I have a free week. We don't have to preach out of the book of Luke. I can preach on anything I want. So, of course, I'm going to talk about sex. <laughs> you thought I was going to say Thanksgiving, and, and uh, I am thankful for sex, but I, that's not the angle I'm going to take on this topic. <laughs> I want to talk about sex. Uh, and in fact, I, I have been asked by a parent to uh, give a little warning up front uh, that this is uh, PG, almost PG rated. I, I, you know, it, people have different levels of sensitivity on this. So if you have your kids with you, um, we'll just, we'll be just using some words that they might ask you questions about later on, and you might have to give answers to those questions. And so if you don't want that to happen, be forewarned. You can, you know, I don't know what you're going to do, but um, <laughs> I, 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 I'm just covering my derriere here. Okay, so you're, you're warned. The thing is this. Part of a central part of, the, of, of this revolting beauty that we've been talking about the last five weeks, manifesting the beauty of, of God's character and love and revolting against everything that is inconsistent with that. A central part of this is manifesting God's, the, the beauty of God's original design for sexuality and revolting against everything that is inconsistent with that revolting against it in our own life and revolting against it in the broader culture. And so I want to entitle this message, Revolting Purity. All right? This is, uh, uh, here's another warning. But when we come together, we worship passionately, we celebrate passionately, but we also preach passionately and we go out of the word passionately and we, we come expecting to be challenged and confronted. Um, we don't come to get our ears massaged. We've got to say it straight. Now, we come from a lot of different backgrounds, and we're a lot of different places in our walk with God, and that's beautiful. We're at different stages. But every time we come together, my job is just to say what's in the Word, and people receive it according to where they're at. And we're all in process on this. And because we come from a lot of different backgrounds, we have different experiences with sexuality, and maybe we're struggling with different things with our sexuality right now. And that's fine. But I want to say up front that this message will probably be convicting to some. And it should be convicting to some. And it's good that it will be convicting to some. It should not be condemning to anybody. All right? There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit convicts us in order to uh, uh, cause us to change. And God is so eager 
to forgive and to restore. And he does it in an instant the minute we ask for it. Condemnations of the devil. Condemnation is the kind of thing that drives you in the ground and makes you feel miserable about yourself and filthy about yourself and things of that sort. And there's no place of that in, for that in the body of Christ. So I hope you hear what I'm going to say. I'm going to say things very straight. And I'm going to give a teaching that probably the majority of people here have not heard before. But it's so vitally important. I'm going to say it straight, but I hope you hear it as God, the God of grace, calling you to a higher place, a, a more beautiful place, a freer place, not as any sort of condemnation thing, but rather with a heart to set you free. And to that end, I want to pray right now. So pray with me. Lord, I, I know this is a big topic, huge topic. In this culture, for some, a scary topic. What I know, Lord, is that we all have to some degree been brainwashed uh, to view sexuality as something other than the magnificently beautiful thing that you created it to be. And I pray, Lord God, that this morning would be a freeing time. Maybe a convicting time, but a conviction in the process of getting free. And I pray it would be a healing time to those who've experienced, experienced wounds uh, for, for, in their sexuality. And I pray, Lord God, that you would use this to build your kingdom in every area of our life, including our sexuality. Make us your holy and separate people who say yes to what you say yes to and no to what you say no to. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. This is on my heart for a number of reasons. Uh, part of it's that I'm writing a chapter right now for uh, a book that I'm, I'm doing, and I've just done some research on statistics on sexual behavior in America, and they sort of freak me out. Um, part of this is that uh, in the last year, I've had to deal with uh, some uh, sexually immoral issues in the body of Woodland Hills Church. And uh, in a few cases, it has been amazing to me that folks have justified their behavior in Jesus' name uh, and have played the you-can't-judge-me card to justify uh, some outrageous immoral behavior. And part of it is just an, an, a growing awareness that I'm sure many of us have that our, our culture, especially in the last 10 years, it's been going on since the 60s, but it's like a train going down a hill that's picking up speed and it's going in the dire direction of uh, total sexual immorality. I, I, I remember an episode of the sitcom Friends uh, in which... Which, which itself is a pretty morally vacant uh, show. Uh, it's got some good humor, but it's not going to win any awards for its, its uh, teaching on sexual morality. But there's a, an episode where Monica, who's one of the stars of the show, starts having sex with a friend. And at one point she says to the friend, uh, is this okay? Is it okay that we're friends and yet we have sex? Because they weren't lovers. I mean, they weren't like romantic. Well, see, that's the weird thing. Uh, they weren't like boyfriend and girlfriend. They were just friends. They hung out together. She goes, is that okay that we have sex? And the guy says, sure. <laughs> it's just, it's something we do together as friends, like playing racquetball. <laughs> and Monica and her went, okay, that sounds right. And, and the show went on. But see, it seems to me, folks, that this is sort of a microcosm of what's going on in the broader culture. Uh, we are a, a, adopting a view of sex as recreational, as racquetball, as just something enjoyable that people share together. A rather moral neutral thing, like shaking hands, really. It's just sort of what you do. It's just sort of expected. And this mindset of sex as recreation uh, uh, so pervades the culture now, inside and outside the church, that to even talk about sexual purity sounds archaic. It sounds Victorian. It sounds repressive. It sounds moralistic or something. It just has a negative quality to it. On the television, in the movies, and certainly, yes, on the internet, we're bombarded with a message about sex that really says it's no big deal. It's just a normal way of having fun. And those folks who don't go to bed after the first date, which is kind of the norm that you see on the movies and stuff, those people who wait until they actually care about the person, they're considered sort of morally heroic. And those people who wait till they fall in love are really heroic. But nobody waits till marriage to even suggest that. Why, that's just to be a prig. It's just uh, prudish. It's Victorian repressive. It's 
whatever. Uh, it permeates the culture. And the, the, a more alarming thing to me is that all the study that I've seen as I prepared for this chapter that I'm doing suggests that the moral behavior of professing Christians in the church differs very, very little from the moral behavior outside the church. It's almost the same. If Woodland Hills, here right now, represents, is an is a average representation of Christianity on, uh, in America on the whole, and I'm sure it's not, but if it was, it would mean that roughly half of the men in this room over the age of 15 have this year at some point gone on a pornography site. And roughly 20% of the women. Um, it's, it's alarming. It would mean that one out of the three pastors regularly visits a porn site because that's the statistics on, on uh, pastoral uh, uh, sexual activity. Do you know that every second, 372 new people log on to a porn site on the internet? Every second. Uh, the porn industry uh, last year made over like 13.6 or 0.7 billion dollars, which is more than professional baseball, basketball, and football put together. There's an epidemic going on in the country. There's an epidemic going on in the church, and we need to talk about it. Now, I could at this point just sort of bring out all the Bible verses that say don't have sex outside of marriage, and just kind of machine gun them at the people. You know, mow you down with it. And that's the, the usual approach. The Bible says. <laughs> but see, when I was a young Christian struggling with my sexuality, I knew all those verses and it didn't stop me. And it, judging from the statistics, it doesn't stop very many people at all. So I don't want to do that. What I want to do right now is to do what is rarely done in the church, and that is to try to go a little bit deeper and ask the question, not just what, what should you do and should you not do, but why? Why is sex such a big deal to God? Why does he put such strong restraints around sexuality throughout the Bible? What is the big deal? And I want us to see the beauty and the rationale behind God's prohibition and the beauty of God's original design for creation because my conviction is that We'll never really be motivated to live according to God's no unless we can see the beauty and the rationale of God's even stronger yes. His yes for sex in marriage. God is the expert on sex. He knows how it operates best. He knows what it's for. And, and, and until we can see the beauty of that and the wisdom of that, we may have a harder time living in accordance with that. And so that's what I want to do here in the next half hour. I want to start with Matthew chapter 19. Here, Jesus is encountering some Pharisees who are, as they always did, trying to trip him up into an argument. And the debate uh, is, was a very common one in the ancient Jewish world, and it was over what were the appropriate grounds, or the permissible grounds, that you could divorce your wife on. Wives weren't allowed to divorce husbands, but husbands were allowed to divorce wives. And so they debated, on what grounds can you divorce your wife? And it really centered on uh, a, the permission that was given in the Old Testament uh, that uh, a man could divorce his wife if uh, he found her to be unpleasing for, the reason, for a reason of being indecent. But it doesn't explain what that word indecent means, so people were arguing about that a lot. And there was one school of thought that said, well, indecent refers to sexually immoral behavior. So the only reason a man can divorce his wife is, is if she does some, something sexually immoral. But another school of thought said, no, it doesn't necessarily mean that. Uh, it can be anything that's indecent, like she's just not a good wife. And so you can divorce your wife really for, for any reason. And so the Pharisees were trying to trip Jesus up in this debate. And Jesus, as he always did, he wisely found a way not to bite the bait. He's not going to engage in this controversy. What he does is really, really interesting. He says this in Matthew chapter 19, starting with verse 4. He says, haven't you read? I love that. Don't you guys read the Bible? That at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female. Interesting differentiation there. And the Creator said, For this reason, because they're different, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Husbands, note that. 
leave your father and mother. Okay, I just thought I'd throw that out there. And, no, and wives, you do the same thing. In-laws, stay out of it. Okay. But that's not what I'm here to preach on. And the two, the two will become one flesh. Very important teaching there. So, Jesus says, they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. He takes them back to God's ideal for marriage and says, when two people come together, they're no longer two, they're one. They're one flesh. Now, he goes on to say that Moses allowed for divorce, gave permission to divorce because of the hardness of our hearts. In a fallen world, divorce happens. But um, he's not saying there that divorce is no longer going to happen. He's not saying that our hearts are any less hard than they were back then. He's not trying to tighten the belt of the Old Testament law. What he's doing, he's not repealing the permission to divorce and remarry. What he's doing is showing the hypocrisy and the stupidity of this debate where you have two schools of thought trying to feel righteous about why they divorce their wives. He's saying, wrong question. What God has joined together should never be separated. Now, it's going to get separated. But the last thing that should ever happen is the people feel self-righteous about why it's separated. So this debate is really stupid. All divorce involves hardness of heart. All divorce involves sin. All divorce involves separating what God has joined together, and it shouldn't happen. It does happen. Repent of it, but don't be feeling righteous about it. Now what I want us to see is this. That whole response is premised on the teaching that God himself is involved in creating the oneness of a husband and wife, in joining people together and making them one flesh. In other words, when a man and a woman come together in marriage and have sexual intercourse, something very profound is going on. A new one flesh reality is being created, and God himself is involved in that process. Something mysterious, something spiritual, something profound is now connecting these people together such that Jesus says they're no longer really two. They're actually one. That oneness reflects the very nature of God because God is a unity amidst diversity. God is himself perfect love. And so this invention called sex, this beautiful invention of his, is a way for humans to mirror the love of the triune God and the ecstasy of the triune God. It's a gift that is given to us be, to be used in that context. And this covenant of marriage that we find in Genesis 2 is the first covenant that God gives us to make with one another, and it's foundational to everything else God gives us. God's plan for humanity to be his viceroys, his administrators on earth, to carry out his loving providence on earth as it is in heaven, to carry out his will on earth as it is in heaven, to reign with him. All of this is built on the bedrock of this marriage covenant, this new trinity-looking reality that God creates between a man and a wife. The, the, the moral fabric of society, for the world to run the way God wants the world to run, it needs this beautiful, unique, one flesh, unity amidst diversity, trinity-looking reality to be protected. That's the one flesh reality that God makes when a man and a woman come together. Now, listen to this. That one flesh reality is created by God. It's woven into the fabric of, of, of creation. It's created whenever two people have sexual intercourse. Whenever. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, look at this. Paul says, Don't you know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her body? For it is said, and now he quotes Genesis chapter 2, the two will become one flesh. Whenever a person has sex with another person, even if, it, even if it's purely for recreational purposes, such as would happen with a prostitute. I think that's why Paul uses this example. It never gets more recreational than that. But even there, the one flesh principle of Genesis 2 applies. Something new is being created between that man and a woman. Something profound, something spiritual, something deep, something foundational is being done when they come together. This is anything but racquetball, folks. 
This is anything but casual. This is huge. This is awesome. Now, it gets even more awesome when we understand that teaching in the light of covenant. My friend Paul Eddy, uh, who's on our executive team here, uh, knows more about covenant than, than anyone else on the planet, so far as I can tell. Uh, he, he says that, that uh, you can't understand anything in the Bible really accurately unless you understand the concept of covenant. In fact, I'll, I'll tell you here that most of what I'm going to give here in the next 15 minutes, I got from him. Uh, he's just taught, I take every occasion I have to throw insults his way because insulting is our love language. But here I want to give a compliment. The guy really has got covenant down. We need to understand the nature of covenant. One of the reasons why people misunderstand some things in the Bible today is because we don't have in our culture much at all about covenant. We think of a covenant as a contract. But it's very different from a contract. A contract is something that occurs between two people but doesn't involve them personally. A covenant is something that involves the people themselves. It's a personal pledge of trust towards another person and a pledge to be trustworthy towards another person. A covenant always changes the parties who go into this covenant. A contract is like buying a car or buying a house. It's just a deal. It's just a deal that people make. It doesn't change you. Marriage is like a covenant. In fact, marriage is a covenant. It's really the only covenant we have left in our culture. You can't go into marriage and, and, and not be changed by that. It's a pledge of your very self. You're putting yourself on the line and trusting another person. Covenant is central to the Bible. All the relationships that you have in the Bible are carved out of covenants. Now, what we need to see is this. Wherever a covenant is made in the Bible, and usually even in the, the surrounding cultures in the ancient world, wherever a covenant is made, it has to be sealed. And it's sealed with a sign. If you don't have the sealing, if you don't have the sign, there is no covenant. The sign is what completes the covenant. And the sign always symbolizes something profoundly important about the covenant. And it serves as a perpetual reminder to people about the covenant pledge that they have made. And you find that whenever a covenant is made, there's a sign that seals it and reminds people of something about the covenant. So for example... Uh, after the flood in Genesis 9, God, God gave, entered into a new covenant with humanity. He made it with Noah. It's called the Noahic Covenant. And the sign that sealed this covenant was the rainbow. Uh, the rainbow in the ancient world symbolized God's bow, for bow and arrow is a weapon. And so God is saying, here's my bow, I'm laying it down. And he does that to, to help remind people that he'll never again flood the world. That was his promise to us. Wherever there's a covenant, there's a sign. With Abraham, God entered into a covenant. It was the foundational covenant for all of Israel. And the sign of this covenant was circumcision. And God, being a very practical God that he is, uh, the purpose for this sign was to remind people that to not keep this covenant means you'll be cut off, there's the pun, cut off from uh, God's people. You'll be banished from the uh, Israeli society. God made another covenant with his people on Mount Sinai when he brought them out of the promised land. And this is where he gave the Ten Commandments. And the, the sign of this covenant was keeping the Sabbath. You had to keep the seventh day holy. And as long as we were under that covenant, we had to keep that sign. And what this symbolizes is that we're going to trust God for protection and provision. We're going to rest in the sufficiency of Yahweh and not just trust in our own ability to work to support ourselves. We will trust God and we'll show that by taking one day out of the week as he commands, and dedicating it to him. The sign of the new covenant that we are all under, the covenant that was purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ, the sign of that covenant is the Lord's Supper, communion. And whenever we take that sign, we are reminded of the fact that Jesus' body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us as a way of reconciling us to God. That's our sign. And we reseal it every time we take that. We're saying, this is for me. I, I pledge myself to him, he pledges himself to me. We enter into that covenant. Now, what we need to know, because this is so foreign to our contemporary way of thinking, but God takes signs very, very seriously. He takes signs of the covenant very, very seriously. In fact, keeping the sign was part of the covenant. To not keep the sign of the covenant was to break the covenant, to desecrate the sign, which means to make it something common 
was to break the covenant, and it always had serious consequences. So, for example, if someone refused to take on the sign of the covenant with Abraham, namely circumcision, then they were, in fact, cut off from the cultures, cut off from the society. <clears throat> if someone refused to keep the sign of the covenant at Mount Sinai, if they refused to keep the Sabbath, they were put to death. If someone refuses to keep the Lord's Supper, this is really interesting, but if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul pointed this out to me. Paul there says, he notes that the, the, the Corinthian Christians were not keeping the Lord's uh, Supper in, in a worthy way. They were, uh, some were getting drunk on the communion wine. That's not good. Some were hoarding the food while others were hungry. That's not good. And Paul says, for this reason, some of you are sick and a few have even died. And what Paul argues, I think with some plausibility, is that what's happening here is Paul is appealing to a covenantal curse. To not keep the sign of the covenant is to invite a curse upon yourself. All right, that's all background. Now let's get back to our topic of sex. The sign of the marriage covenant, this foundational covenant to human society, the sign of the covenant is sexual intercourse. And what that sign communicates and reminds us of is that we were once two, but now we are one. What it reminds us of is that our lives are to, to interpenetrate each other. We're, we're, we are one body. We're to function as one person. It's a reminder that God has made us one flesh. The one flesh reality of a husband and wife, of course, goes beyond their sexuality. It involves their emotions, their psyche, their history, their spiritual lives. It involves everything. But the seal of it, what seals it and what signifies it is sexual intercourse. This is the sign of the marriage covenant. Now, in traditional Jewish weddings, the, they didn't celebrate the wedding until the covenant was made and the sign was, was, was delivered until they consummated the marriage. So they, 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 they exchanged their wedding vows, but that's not yet a covenant. A covenant has to be signed. So the couple would then go off into a special chamber, they would have sexual intercourse, and then they'd return to the party, and now you'd celebrate. Which I would think would be, would be a little bit awkward. <laughs> What's taking him so long? You know, <laughs> we can be thankful those days are over. Uh, you know, but... But it just shows you that they regarded this as being the sign of the covenant. In fact, even more bizarrely, in some cultures, including in the Old Testament, the sign wasn't just to be visible to the two parties that sealed the covenant. Um, what they did in the Old Testament, in some cases, is they'd bring out the bedsheet. And the blood on the bedsheet, if the woman's hymen broke, there was blood on the bedsheet, and this was proof that this covenant was now sealed in blood. This was, uh, the, the sign had been taken on. It was also proof that the woman was a virgin and uh, that she hadn't entered into this covenant with somebody else, and that was important to them back, back then. But it just drives home uh, how seriously they, they took this sign business. In fact, in some cultures, this is in the Old Testament, but in some cultures, a few that I've heard of, because this is really a transcultural phenomenon, but some cultures... The parents witness the, the boy and the girl coming together and having sex. And I'm really glad that, that we don't have those, that going on. There'd be a lot of marriages that would not be consummated if that was the deal. That's, uh, <laughs> sex is the sign of this foundational covenant in the Bible. It's the foundational covenant that God has with humanity, and so much hangs on this. And I want us to see that this is anything but recreational. This is anything but, but, but racquetball. When two people have sex, what it means is this. If we take the Bible seriously, they are, from God's perspective, sealing a covenant, this foundational covenant with one another. They're creating a new reality. God is involved in bringing them together and creating a new reality. Look at 1 Corinthians 6 again. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her body? There's that oneness there. For it is said the two will become one flesh. The one flesh principle, as I said, applies even when sex is purely recreational as it is with a prostitute. The two become one flesh. And this is the same one flesh reality that Jesus said what God has joined together should never be torn apart. There's a covenant being sealed here. 
This is why in the Old Testament, if a man had sex with a woman outside of wedlock, the law commanded him to marry her. And in that case, the permission to divorce under certain circumstances was revoked. For the rest of your life, you're married to this person. And the reason was because, here's the rationale, since you've already signed the covenant, whatever your intention was, maybe it was just racquetball, you just wanted to have some little fun, but you have signed the covenant, and now you have an obligation to live up to it. The vows are supposed to come before the sign, but since you've taken on the sign, now you have to make the vows. God takes this very, very seriously. Whenever we have sex with somebody, in God's eyes, we're sealing what is supposed to be a lifelong foundational covenant. So when we move on to a new sexual partner, we are technically committing adultery. And God takes this very, very seriously. Folks, this isn't racquetball. This is not recreational, pleasurable handshaking. Now, why is God so, so, so serious about this? And the answer is this. This is, sex is, one of the most powerful, maybe the most powerful and most beautiful, most God-glorifying things when it's done in the right context. It's a peekaboo into the ecstasy and joy and love of the triune God. It's so precious, so powerful, so beneficial, and so instrumental to the wholesomeness of the couple and to the wholesomeness of society. But when it's not done in the way that God created it to be done, when it's lived outside of that context, it becomes an incredibly destructive thing in our lives and in broader society. You can think of sex a little bit like the energy that holds an atom together. As long as that energy is contained in the nucleus, it's, it's, it's one of the strongest forces known to human beings. It holds the universe together. Everything holds together because of this energy inside of the atoms in the nucleus. But when you split that and divide it, the same power that holds things together now splits them apart. And you've got yourself a hydrogen bomb, one of the most destructive forces we know of. We've got a Hiroshima bomb. So also, this powerful and wonderful force that God's given to us to hold marriages together and to hold society together, and I think it has something to do with holding our psyches together, this reality that he creates when two people come together, it is so beneficial and what a blessing to hold things together when it's used rightly. But when it's turned outward, and there's so all these calls and all this temptation to engage in sex outside of marriage, the same power that would bless us and unite us and build society now curses us and, 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 and is destructive to society. And what we're seeing today in our culture is a bunch of Hiroshima bombs going off. And some of us here today have been wounded by some of those Hiroshima bombs. And some of our families have been wounded by these Hiroshima bombs. And I believe we're wounded in ways that we don't even under, understand. And the society is being wounded by these Hiroshima bombs. Almost 40% of the kids this year will be born outside of wedlock. That's a Hiroshima bomb. And that feeds into poverty and it feeds into crime and it feeds into violence among our young people. It, it, it erodes society. Over 40% of all marriages are going to end in divorce. There'll be a, another a, a one plus... Uh, 1.2 million abortions they're estimating this year. Uh, this is what happens when we don't honor the sacred sign of the covenant. Destruction all over the place. One out of five Americans has a sexually transmitted disease. Uh, and and, and the, the level of depression and the rate of suicide in our culture, I would submit, is partly due to the fact that we're not honoring the sign of, of the covenant. When we separate ourselves from something that God has joined together, and we do it in a cavalier way. It erodes something in our psyche. America has, in terms of countries tested, we're the most depressed nation. That might have something to do with the fact that we're one of the most promiscuous nations. If we can connect the dots and see that, we're setting off Hiroshima bombs all over the place. And I would argue it's imploding our culture. And the sad thing to me is that it's inside the church as much as it's outside the church. The sign of the covenant is precious and beautiful precisely because it's not intended for common use. Think, of, think, think about this. Something is precious to the extent that it's rare. It's not ordinary. A, a diamond is precious because it's not like other rocks. We pay a lot for diamonds because they're rare. We don't pay anything for ordinary stones because you can get them any place. It costs us something to get a diamond precisely because the diamond is precious because it's rare. The sign of the covenant, 
sexual intercourse is precious and beautiful precisely because it's not intended for common use. In fact, from God's perspective, it's intended for one. And that's what makes it precious. Of all the people on the planet, I commit to having sex with my wife alone. And of all the people on the planet, she commits to having sex with me alone. And it's precious because it cost us something, namely our whole lives. We had to pledge our lives to get this. And we have to sacrifice by learning how to do life together as a married couple. But see, the sacrifice and the rareness, the singularity of this diamond is what makes it a diamond. It's precious. It's not like an ordinary stone. But when we have sex outside of wedlock, folks, we're treating the most magnificent diamond as though it was a common stone. We desecrate the sacred sign of this foundational covenant in the Bible, and we invite misery and that disaster down on ourselves. And we invite it down on those that we're having sex with. And we invite it down on society. Kingdom people, our pledge to God, what makes us kingdom people is that we have pledged to live under the king, to let our life be a dome in which God is king. All of our life to be a dome in which God is king, which means we commit to having our sexuality be within the dome in which God is king. And when we do that, this is what it looks like. Married folks, you don't have sex outside of marriage. Unmarried folks, you don't have sex until you're married. To be a kingdom people means we're to be a separate people. It requires sacrifice, but everything about the kingdom requires sacrifice because the kingdom always looks like Jesus who sacrificed his life for us and, 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 and for all people. That's what defines what it means to be a kingdom person. And our job is to manifest the beauty of God's character and the beauty of God's wisdom and therefore the beauty of God's original intent for this covenantal sign and revolt against everything that would cheapen it. Revolt against anything that would make this diamond simply a common stone. Revolt against the massive promiscuity of our culture. And that is profoundly difficult to do because we're brainwashed every day of our life to think of this as just a common stone. But to walk with God means we say yes to what God says yes to, and we say no to what God says no to, and we, show the, the, we manifest the beauty of God's yes and expose the ugliness of God's no, and we do it in Jesus' name. Now I want to end with four quick practical words here to help us move on from this. Four things that we can do. Lord, give me succinctness here because I've only got eight minutes left. Okay, number one, if needed, the first thing to do is to repent. If you've been sexually active outside of marriage, the Bible calls on you to repent. The word repent simply means to turn. Metanoia, it means to turn. It doesn't necessarily imply that you're feeling a great deal of remorse over this. Sometimes people think if you don't cry and feel really guilty, then it's not repentance. That's nonsense. What you feel will be largely determined by what you're culturally conditioned to feel. And in our culture, you're conditioned every day of your life to feel like this is no big deal. And you may be even be sitting here right now wondering, like, why is this such a big deal? I, you see the rationale of it, but it doesn't feel like that to you. That's okay. I got that. Whether you feel it or not, if you see now that you've been duped before, and you see now the beauty and the rationale of God's original design for sexuality, the Bible calls on you to turn. And that just means I'm going to stop living this way, patterned after friends and sex in the city and every other show we watch. And I'm going to start living this way, patterned after the word of God and the example of Jesus Christ. It just means that you turn and move in a different direction. It may, it may sometimes involve, if God leads you on this, just be open to this, to make restitution as much as possible. Uh, when we turn from one way of walking, we try to repair as much as we can. And what that might look like is going back to some people in your past and asking for forgiveness. Realizing now the gravity of what you were doing back then, setting off Hiroshima bombs in their life. You help them violate one of the most sacred covenants in the Bible, the most sacred between human beings. And so it's appropriate to humbly go and ask for forgiveness. Now, they might laugh at you, they might scorn you, who knows what they're going to do, but that's okay. Your job is to humble yourself. Now, that's not always appropriate. That's not always wise. You're digging up something in the past, and sometimes that shouldn't happen. So pray about God's wisdom on this, but be open to that possibility. Secondly, if needed, receive forgiveness and healing. 
As I mentioned before, what I know is that anytime there's a strong message from the Word that is countercultural, people get convicted, and that conviction can sometimes, if we're not careful, lead to condemnation. And the devil can be jumping all over some people right now in this congregation or who are listening by, by iPod uh, or podcasting. Um, I want to rebuke that in Jesus' name. Conviction is of God, that little prick in your heart that says, I got to turn. But condemnation is never of God. There is no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. So you've got to know this and you've got to believe this and lock it in. When you turn and ask God for forgiveness, you've got forgiveness. The Bible says he's eager, he's willing and eager to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. So when the moment you ask for forgiveness, done, done. Calvary applied, done. Washed clean, done. Forgiven, done. Made new, done. New creature in Christ Jesus, it's done. I, amen. You're new, you're clean, you're the bride of Christ. Reclaim that innocence. Reclaim that purity and walk in that. And if lingering feelings of guilt persist, and sometimes they do, realize that that's just part of, that's just something else. And keep on reminding yourself that in Christ you are clean and, and made whole. And then ask God to forgive, not just forgive you and receive that, but to heal you and bring wholeness into your life and repair some of the Hiroshima scars that you may have received in your life. Third, so important, be accountable to others. One of the big lies that drives the massive promiscuity of our culture is this. My sex is nobody's business. Nobody's business but my own. No one has the right to question me on who I have sex with or how I have sex. It's my business, so nobody else's. Now, that, of course, is true legally and socially. And that's a good thing. I don't want to be looking at anyone else's bedroom, and I don't want them looking at mine. Okay, got that. But we are the kingdom. We're a separate society. We're called to be different. And kingdom people, there's got to be somebody in your life who loves you enough and knows you well enough that you've given permission to ask these sorts of tough questions with. We're not supposed to go it alone. The kingdom is about a community. And we're supposed to have people on the inside of our life. I need people on the inside of my life. People who know me well enough to notice if I'm starting to go astray. And people who love me enough to confront me when I'm going astray, saying, Greg, what's up with this? We need people to ask us, that we trust, and that they're not doing it to judge us. They're not to do it, doing us to moralize over us. They're doing it because they care, and we know that. And we need to give them permission to ask us, how did it go on the date last night? How's it going on the internet? You know, that vulnerable area that we talked about, how's that going these days? And to hold us accountable, all of us need that. And so I encourage you, if you're not in one already, to, to, think, to, to get into a small group or some other way, get friends on the inside of your life that you trust and you give permission to ask tough questions to. Along with this goes this principle, very important. Pledge to not keep secrets. Secrets are darkness, and darkness always gives the prince of darkness room to operate. Don't keep secrets. Have somebody you tell everything you just did on that previous date to. Have somebody you tell, if your thought life is going outside of your marriage context, somebody that you tell. In fact, for single people now, this answers a question that all of you have probably asked, maybe incessantly, and that is, how far is too far? How far can I go? And I so get that question from a hormonal point of view. I, 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 I once was single, <laughs> I once was young and vibrant. I asked that question. Okay, look it. Look it. The Bible says, I'll say two things about this. The Bible says three times in the New Testament, flee from immorality. And it uses the word porneia, which means simply any sexually indecent thing. Flee from it. Flee. Run the opposite direction. Which means asking the question, how close can I get to it, probably isn't the right question. I'm just thinking. All right, I'm just thinking. Just a hypothesis. The right question would be, how can I have safeguards not to move in that direction? Because I'm supposed to flee from that. Go to, a, go, go to the, a different extreme. The second thing I'd say is this. If you, if you keep the principle of not keeping secrets, it will answer all these questions. Here what I, here's what I propose to you. Part of the diamond of sexual intercourse in marriage, part of the diamond is the privilege to privacy. A married couple now gets to share stuff with one another that would be totally appropriate to share anywhere else. 
they get to have privacy. But that's part of the beauty and the rareness of the covenant. If you're not married, you haven't yet paid the price, namely pledging your life, to have that right. So, single folks, I challenge you to commit to this principle. If you can't do it in public, don't do it in private. If you wouldn't do it in the Mall of America, don't do it. Now, that answers a lot of questions. That answers a lot of questions. I'm, I'm just saying, uh, you know, honor, honor the preciousness and the uniqueness of the privilege of marriage. The final thing I want to say is this. And again, this is to single people. Single people, affirm, affirm, affirm your singleness. You folks have been, gotten a raw deal. You've gotten a raw deal from the culture, and you've certainly gotten a raw deal from the church. Uh, there's sort of a mindset that's pervasive in the church that quote-unquote normal is being married. That's the normal. So if you're in your late 20s and 30s and 40s, 50s, whatever, and you're not married, well, what is up with this? Uh, there's the assumption that you haven't quite arrived. There's something just not quite complete about you. If you're single, you surely, the assumption is that you want to be married, so you're on the prowl to get married, you're hoping to get married, and, and you really don't have much joy in your life because you're not married. And uh, look at single folks, I want you to know that Paul, the Apostle Paul, and Jesus himself, both of whom were single, by the way, not only affirm being single, but they say that in this fallen world, world context, in this war zone that we're a part of, there's a distinct advantage to being single. A person who is single can be more singularly devoted to the Lord and singularly devoted to kingdom service than most folks who are married. Read 1 Corinthians 7. Paul talks about that. There's a great advantage to being single. And so single folks, whether this is a permanent thing for you or a temporary thing for you, don't be doing life as a holding pattern, like you're waiting around for the real thing to happen, because that's a dangerous spot to be. That will set in motion impulses to try to get as much of that marriage pie as you can ahead of time. And that's partly what motivates people into sexual immorality. No, as long as you're single, see this as a positive, wonderful, admirable vocation that you have because that's exactly what it is. Paul says that's what it is. And married folks, far from in any way looking askance at, at single folks wondering what's wrong, we ought to be admiring these folks, holding them up as, as walking in an honorable way because in one respect, they're closer to the ideal of Paul and Jesus than being married. Now, single folks, don't go getting self-righteous on us married folks, all right? But I want to encourage you to own your singleness. That's a positive thing. That's a good thing. It requires a unique dimension of sacrifice that married folks don't have to deal with as much, and that is dealing with sexual tension and sexual frustration. Though if you think that always ends the minute you get married, you got nothing coming. I mean, there's schedules to work out and headaches and all the other kind of stuff. Uh, you know, so you're going to, that you'll deal with the rest of your life. But, if, but there's a special dimension for you, for, it, for you being single and walking in this way. It requires sacrifice. But remember, what makes something precious is the sacrifice. And everything about the kingdom involves sacrifice. And so see this as a noble, high kingdom calling. I've spoken with several uh, gay folks who go to Woodland Hills uh, Church, and I just appreciate the, the, the fact that, that there's, so far as I can tell, an increasing number of gay folks who are coming here. And, and I, some have, the, have expressed this sort of sentiment. It just feels, since I didn't choose this, it feels like I was born in a prison. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm like condemned that I can't enjoy what the pleasure and the ecstasy that married folks can. This is my, like a life sentence. And I can have nothing but compassion for that. Nothing but compassion for that. And it does require sacrifice to walk according to God's way as a single person. But I try to help folks to reframe that, whether you're straight or, or gay, reframe that and say, look at, yes, you know, there's a lot of things we don't choose about life. It comes to us. But you're in this situation, and, and, and I want you to own this as a positive thing, as a vocational call, and invest yourself all the more in kingdom life, in kingdom work, in devotion to God. And see that as a beautiful, high, noble, Christ-like calling that God has called you to. Yes, it involves suffering and sacrifice, but that's what makes it a kingdom thing. Close your eyes for a moment. I just want to ask the Holy Spirit to seal on our hearts what we need to take away from this message and be open to the Holy Spirit right here and right now communicating to you truth. Do you need to repent? If so, just turn. 
Make a commitment to turn. Does God bring someone to your mind that you perhaps have to go and ask forgiveness from? Just receive it and commit to do it. Do you need to receive the forgiveness of God? Ask for it and receive it. And hear the Lord and see the Lord Jesus in your mind saying to you, it's okay, it's covered now. I want to restore you, I want to set you free, and I want to heal you. You are my radiant bride. The past is past. Learn from it, but no regrets. You're going to move on now, and it will be beautiful. For some here, the Lord is going to put on your heart the need to stop doing life solo. You need community. And I would encourage you to listen to God, and he might tell you to stop at the community table and sign up for a small group, and maybe lead a small group, or go to the refuge, join Pure Desire group, uh, and, and other things like that. The Lord will lead you. The Lord will lead you. And single folks, the Holy Spirit may be encouraging you right here right now to own and even cherish your singleness. It's not a curse. It may feel like that sometimes for sure. But what you're called to at this stage of your life anyways is noble and honorable and Christ-like and beautiful and advantageous. And use the extra time and resources that you have to further the kingdom. Lead us, Holy Spirit. Guide us, Holy Spirit. Empower us, Holy Spirit. In this culture of promiscuity, help us to be that holy nation, a holy people who manifest a revolting purity. A purity that revolts against the culture and a purity that the culture will find revolting. And that's okay. Because our one concern is to please you and not anyone or anything in the culture. Transform us. To reflect your character, in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said one last time, amen. Amen. I, I appreciate you folks. You sat through that thing. I appreciate you folks. Let the word soak. If you're here uh, this morning and you have any need that you would like to have prayed for, come forward. Uh, we, our, if our prayer team would come forward right now and you could pray with these folks or if you just want to kneel at the altar, that's fine too. Uh, God bless you guys. Go out and build the kingdom. Be transformed. Love you.